I love that song. And I hope you will lo grow in loving it. Because everything we have talked about um, in John's gospel for the last four weeks um, is sort of summarized in a beautiful song that we have just sung. I hope you will take it home with you, meditate on it, and uh, ponder it. Because it says how good it is to embrace his commands, to prefer one another, forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. And by doing that, we show to the world that the Redeemer has come. This is my prayer for us this morning as we look at John 17. Well, let me ask you this morning, do you like to listen to people pray? Some of you are nodding your heads. I'm encouraged to hear that. Do you like praying out loud? Very few noddings. Some say... Our society has been influenced by a misguided principle of private religion. The privatization of religion, the privatization of spirituality, so that my religion is my thing, not for anybody else to see. And that concept has penetrated in the church as well, unfortunately. People don't feel comfortable praying out loud. Now, some of this might be a reaction against the perceived abuse of the Pharisees who loved to pray in public places. Jesus warned us against um, such a prayer line that only shows off or shows up in public. But today, I think we went back way too far to the other extreme. For some today feel awkward in doing any kind of praying out loud. Do you feel this way? It's okay to acknowledge it. It's not okay to remain there. Praying with others, letting others hear your prayers for them, can be very edifying. So it's not enough, friends, just to tell people, oh, I'll pray for you. I mean, that's great. Do that. But do more than that. Pray with them. Stop where you are and pray with them because it's encouraging to others to hear how other believers actually pray for them. And this is what we're getting in John 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples. And how edifying it is for us to know what Jesus prayed for, for us, for his disciples, and for the church. Well, this morning, I encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. As you turn there, if you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 939. If you're visiting us this morning and you do not have a Bible, we want to give you one. Take the one you find. It's a small one. You can carry it with you um, at work, in your car. We hope that you take the time to read through God's Word, and we want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. John 17. The message title this morning is Jesus' Prayer List. Let's read this text together and what Jesus prays for. The Word of the Lord says the following. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. 
glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so they may have the full measure of my joy with them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As I as you sent me in the world, I have sent them in the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them.
This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's ask the Lord to give us His Spirit so that we may understand what we have just read and heard. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Righteous Father, we praise You for Your revelation that You have given to us about Yourself in Jesus Christ. We thank You that Your revelation produces love in us. We thank You that Your truth produces unity when we accept it. Oh Lord, we pray that You would give us Your Holy Spirit. We may understand Your Word so that we may accept it and live it and apply it to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, it's right before the crucifixion. What do you think Jesus prays for? What would you pray for if you are in similar conditions? Not exactly. None of us will be in that kind of condition. But what would you pray for right before a great trial. Some of you are in one right now. What do you pray for? John doesn't tell us about the Gethsemane story as the other gospel writers do. Here Jesus in John, in the gospel of John, Jesus finishing the instructions to the disciples. From chapter 13 until now, we saw how Jesus taught specifically and exclusively his disciples. And now this teaching time ends with prayer for the disciples. What was waiting heavy on Jesus' heart? What was waiting heavy on Jesus' heart? We can figure that out by listening to his prayer. Friends, there's a lot you can learn about someone by listening to how they pray. There's a lot you can listen about someone by listening to what they pray for, what burdens their hearts. Now, we have here before us one of the longest prayers of Scripture from the mouth of Jesus. It's not the only prayer Jesus gave us, but it's the longest one we have recorded. What burdened Jesus' heart before his crucifixion? Five things. If you like taking notes, five things. The first one is the glory of God. The first thing that burdened Jesus' heart before the crucifixion, before this trial, was the glory of God. Look with me to verse 1. Jesus says, by the way, for those of you who are visiting us this morning, um, and you don't know how we do our, our sermon teaching, we like to look to the Bible quite often and hope you would keep it open, um, that you follow what we say, that what I say here is according to God's Word. Please check and make sure that it is. But look with me to verse 1. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Now, everything Jesus has done was motivated by this one supreme purpose, to bring glory to his Father. This is what motivated Jesus as he was looking to the cross. This is what motivated him throughout his life on earth. Look at verse 4 again. Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, what was the task God gave Jesus during his earthly ministry? Verse 2 tells us. Look at verse 2. It's right there in the passage. For you granted him, namely the Son, 
you granted the Son authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. Friends, Christ received authority over all people. Now, this is a crucial truth for us to believe. Christ received authority over all people. And yet, if you've read the Gospel of John with us, if you've been with us for the last 18, 19 weeks as we've been going through this Gospel, you will remember that not all people responded to Jesus. As a matter of fact, most of the Jews didn't. So, does that diminish the authority of Christ? Or does that diminish the glory He brought the Father? No. Jesus gave eternal life to those whom the Father has given the Son. How did Jesus give this eternal life? What did this eternal life entail? Look with me to verse 3 and 6. They tell us what this eternal life that Jesus gave was. Friend, if you are visiting this morning and are not a Christ follower, perhaps someone invited you to church this morning, or perhaps you came on your own initiative, listen carefully to what Jesus says he was sent on earth to do, to give eternal life. And here's how Jesus defines it. This is crucial for you to get. If you get nothing else from this morning's service, get this. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We receive eternal life, the life God promises to us through His Son, Jesus. We receive this life by coming into a personal knowledge with a true God of who He is, what He's like, what He has done for us. Now, all this revelation of God began with the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, all the way to the book of Malachi. But this revelation of God was climactically, climactically given to us in a person, in a human being. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He was not only a fully human being, but he was also fully divine. So getting to know this Jesus, getting to know what he revealed to us about God, gives us eternal life. Now this knowledge of Jesus and God is not simply a rational knowledge, an intellectual knowledge. Otherwise, demons would have it also. The knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus, is not simply a head knowledge. It's not even a fact knowledge. Uh, the kind of knowledge that you just get when you just simply read the Bible and learn as if it's a statistics book. It's not a statistics book at all, but um, it's not an encyclopedia either. It's not just a knowledge about facts of God. It's a heart knowledge. A knowledge that moves our hearts to respond to God in love and submission. This kind of knowledge, this kind of heart knowledge, the demons cannot possess. Now, how do we know this is the kind of knowledge Jesus, Jesus is talking about? Look with me to verse 6. Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. This true knowledge of God and of His Son grips us on the inside. 
it takes a hold of us. It takes such a hold of us that we are willing to abandon our previous pursuits and respond to Him with joy and submission out of love for what He has done for us. Look again at verse 8. Jesus says, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. Friends, to know God and His Son means to accept His words and let them change us, transform us, correct us, rebuke us, and mold us. Knowing God and obeying His word goes hand in hand. Friends, there is a knowledge of God that leaves us unchanged. There's a knowledge of God that leaves us untransformed. It's a kind of knowledge that demons have. Do you know that demons know the Bible better than we do? They knew who God is before He revealed Himself to us in this Word. And it's not just demons that have this kind of knowledge. Nominal Christians can have this kind of knowledge that doesn't change them, that doesn't transform them. For those of you who don't know the term nominal Christian, is, it's a label for people who just call themselves Christians. They're Christians by name only. Not because anything has changed inside of them. They're just Christians by name. They go to Sunday school classes. They attend churches regularly. Say, so how, how do we know that? Friends, do you know that demons go to church? <clears throat> demons can, can, can be in the gathering of the saints. Jesus found them in his ministry. He found people who were demon-possessed in the synagogues. And they were not causing any trouble until Jesus came, the Son of God. And the demons were the first ones to recognize him. Read the Gospel of Mark. It's very clear. The first people in the Gospel of Mark who recognized Jesus are demons. So there is a knowledge of God that doesn't transform us, doesn't change us. Demons have it. Nominal Christians have it. So we should not be impressed just by any kind of knowledge of God. And then there is another kind of knowledge of God. The kind of knowledge of God that dissatisfies you with yourself and produces in you a hunger for God and leads you to turn away from your ways and pursue this God wholeheartedly, trusting in what His Son has accomplished for us on the cross. We come to know and accept His loving kindness. We come to know and accept His holiness, His wrath against sin, His provisions for the sacrifice in our place. And we come to accept the invitation He gives us to repent of our sins and turn to Him. So we truly know this kind of God when we make that turn and receive eternal life. That's the kind of knowledge that transforms. That's the kind of knowledge that demons cannot have. That's the kind of knowledge that nominal Christians do not have. Oh, friend, if you are a nominal Christian this morning, or perhaps you, you don't know Christ at all, you would not consider yourself a Christian, I encourage you to respond to the knowledge that God has revealed to us, to you this morning. He is a kind of God who wants to change you from the inside out. Pursuing your life, pursuing your dream desires will lead you to emptiness.
but He came to give us life, a life that will be abundant, an eternal life. Friend, if this is your desire this morning, if you'd like to know more about this kind of knowledge of God that changes us, that gives us eternal life, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. For those of you who have known God for a while and you want to make sure that you don't have just a nominal knowledge of, of, of God, a, a kind of nominal Christianity, but you truly want to know who God is and want to grow in that kind of knowledge, I recommend to you getting the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you've never read that book, you need to read it. Before you die, you need to read that book. Um, it's a great book. It's a little challenging. It's not easy. So I encourage you to read it with another co- Christian friend. Get together once a week, every two weeks. Read a chapter. They're short chapters. But read and read and read because he does a great job of making us, helping us, sh- making us uh, clear on what the true knowledge of God is and what it's not. Friends, there is no true knowledge of God without obedience. And there's no true obedience to God apart from knowing him. That's why Jesus can define eternal life as knowing God and His Son. This kind of knowledge, this kind of life brings us into fellowship with God. Now, Jesus is, is hours away from the cross. Remember? Hours away from the cross. And what He's preoccupied with is not the safety of His life, but to make sure that people know how to get eternal life. Friends, who in the world would do this? In the midst of being overwhelmed with trouble, trouble and trial facing him just a few hours later, and his main preoccupation is to make sure people know what eternal life is. It's incredible. That's the glory of God, to see Jesus more concerned about the eternal life of others than of his own suffering. Even though the cross, even through the cross, Jesus wants to bring glory to his Father. But when he thinks of his Father's glory, he also thinks of his glory. You know why? Because he shared it before the creation of the world. So he prays for that. Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, in some way, this prayer we cannot pray in the same way because none of us had glory with God. We did never, none of us shared the same glory as God's before the world began. Only Jesus can pray this prayer, this specific prayer in this way. For those of you who are wondering if Jesus is worth pursuing, this verse alone should tell us a great picture why Jesus is worth pursuing. He had the same glory with God the Father before the world began. Next time you meet a, 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 a person who comes from the Muslim background or from the Jehovah's Witnesses background, just point them to this verse. Just go with them through this verse. That's who Jesus is. He's not just a human being. He's not just a prophet. He had equal share of the glory of God before the world began. But there's something for us, too, to learn from this kind of prayer. Jesus prays for the glory he had with the Father to be given to him again. He's looking forward when the glory of the Father will be given back to him. And he's praying this prayer right before the cross. Friends, when our minds are preoccupied by the glory of God, even our suffering and trials will dim and we will be strengthened to persevere. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. For those of you who are going through trials, 
Perhaps right now, look at what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you see what comfort Paul gets? Jesus, right before the cross, is praying for the glory of God. Friend, what motivates you? Perhaps you're struggling to make the glory of God the true motivation of all you do. Honestly, I struggle with that. It's hard for me to think of the glory of God in everything I do. It's hard for me when I go to trials, struggles, to think of the glory of God. And yet, when we have a picture of the glory of God, it helps us. It helps us to go through times of struggle. And that's what Jesus does. He's looking at the cross by looking forward to what's beyond it, the glory of God. And then starting from verse 5 to the end of the chapter, Jesus moves towards, Jesus moves in his prayer life towards petitions for his disciples. So he prays for the glory of God. That's the first thing he prays for. But then he moves on to pray for these disciples. What does he pray for, for his disciples? We have four more things left. Remember we said five things Jesus prayed for? I covered the first one. It was somewhat of the longest. Let's look at at the things that Jesus now prays for, for his disciples. Four things left. He prayed for their health. He prayed for rain. He prayed for Uncle Jimmy. He prayed for travel mercies. He prayed for John to get a job. He prayed for dot, 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 dot. And that's in verse dot, 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 dot. No, he didn't. Now, please don't misunderstand. Scripture teaches us to bring all anxieties, all of our petitions, regardless of their nature, to bring them to God. We're called to pray for rain. We're called to pray for the sick. There's absolutely nothing wrong in praying for any of these things I just listed. Absolutely nothing wrong. And yet, if that's all we pray for, something is wrong. If that's all we pray for, or if that's what predominantly we pray for, something is wrong. Friends, look at your prayer list. Think of your prayer list. And evaluate how balanced are your petitions between earthly needs and spiritual needs. And let's look and see what Jesus prayed for. Look with me to the second thing Jesus prayed for. Pray Jesus prays for the disciples' protection. Verse 11. Actually, this request for protection is is brought twice in this text. In verse 11, be, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, we typically, when we pray for protection, we typically pray for protection from physical danger. But do we ever pray for protection so that we may remain united? Do you ever think of protection and unity as needing one another? We need for protection so that we may remain united? Friends, when we think of all the sins of the tongue, such as gossip, slander, bat-talking, or sins of the heart, divisions, envy, sinful desires, or the sinful values of our culture, self-centeredness, individuality, privacy, or Simply personal preferences. Um, All of these, when we stay and think about them, all of them are enemies of our unity. 
And we need to pray for God's protection upon us so that our unity may grow and flourish. But then the, the prayer for protection is repeated in verse 15. Jesus says in verse 15b, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Here Jesus is very clear. He wants to make sure that his disciples remain in the world. But this means they will be exposed to the influence of the evil one who rules over this world. Later, Jesus will tell the disciples of how he commissioned them into the world, into the territory where the prince of this world is still in control. So, protection from the evil one is necessary. It means protection against falling in his traps. It means protection against believing his lies. It means protection against doubting God's promises. Friends, when we remember how Jesus was tempted by the devil by misinterpreting God's promises. That should give us chills. It's not enough just simply to know God's Word. We need to know how to interpret it correctly so we don't fall into the traps of the evil one. When we think that Jesus was tempted in his appetite and with fame by the devil, he will tempt us too. Remember that Satan entered Judas Iscariot so that he could carry out the plans of darkness, and Judas was one of the twelve. Such protection against the evil one is real. Now, friends, just because Jesus described his eleven disciples, the rest of the eleven, as belonging to God, does not mean that everything is settled and done. Jesus still prays for those who already belong to God. In verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. And yet Jesus prays for protection for them from the, from the evil one. Friends, this means that just because we are secure in God's hands does not mean that we should take it easy in our prayer life for one another. We should be committed to pray for protection, protection against disunity, Protection against the attempts of the evil one? Friends, do you pray for others for this kind of protection? I encourage you. I encourage you to pray for protection for one another. Then there's a, another thing Jesus prays for for his disciples. Verse 17, Jesus prays for the disciples' sanctification. Now, that's a big word. If you're not used to church language, um, that's a, a pretty big word. Um, here's what it means, very simply, plainly. There are two parts to this definition, this word of to be sanctified. It means, one, to be separated from sin. Second, it means to be put in the service of God. Two things. To sanctify means to be separated from sin and then to be put in the service of God. And these two things go hand in hand. They go together. So what does he mean when Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth? It means, Father, separate them from sin and put them in your service. Now what is the means of this sanctification? In this passage, Jesus says it's the Word of God. The Word of God exposes in us our impurities. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Friends, that's the power of God's Word. When God's Word scans us, He finds impurities in our hearts. So, what does this mean for us? Here's a very practical application. Friend, when you read God's Word, I hope you do. I hope you read God's Word more than what what we do on Sunday mornings here in the service. When you read God's Word one-on-one with another believer or just you by yourself, are you reading it just so that you may find support for what you already believe? Or are you reading it with an attitude of being open to be corrected? The Word of God leads us not simply to a head knowledge of God, but to a right living. It's so easy for us to satisfy ourselves with a head knowledge of God's Word, but not let this truth drill into our hearts and expose the depthness of our sins. So when you study God's Word in your personal devotions, in your one-on-one times with other believers, or in home groups, or in Sunday school classes, or even when you hear it here in the gathering of the saints every, every, every week, are you doing it with a readiness to pluck out the lies sown by the evil one and plant instead truths of God's Word? When God's Word confronts us, it always wants to do this work of pulling out weeds and planting good seeds, pulling out bad stuff and putting good plants in us so that God's Word may bring fruit in our lives, in our attitudes, in our affections, in our decisions, in our desires. These are the fruits of God's Word when that is implanted in us. So the purpose of sanctification is so that we might be put in the service of God. And this is a prayer Jesus has. It's not that Jesus just wants people to be holy. That is a desire for sure. But it's not simply that Jesus, that disciples might live good lives. There's more to it than that. It's sanctification has the purpose of being put in the service of God. And that's what Jesus prays for the disciples next. Jesus prays for the disciples' mission. That's a fourth reason. Jesus prays for. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's why Jesus prayed for their sanctification. Because Jesus sent them into the world. To be sanctified means to be separate from sin for the purpose of serving God. Friends, you know what this means. Is that when we think about us being sanctified, it's not just about creating a holy huddle here among us. It's not just so that we may feel satisfied about how holy we are and feeling good about ourselves and thinking that if, if in heaven there was a Nawana program, we should really get a lot of badges because we're more holy. No. God wants us to be sanctified so that we are put in the service of God. That's the purpose why Jesus prays for the sanctification of these disciples. This means, dear friends, that when we believe in who Christ is, when we believe His truth, we are also automatically set aside for His service. You don't need to be set aside by some sort of subjective calling. 
all Christ's followers, all disciples of Jesus are sanctified by the truth and set apart for His work. Now, God may call some people to do this kind of work vocationally. Others, God may call to do this kind of work as lay pastors or elders in the local church. But all disciples of Jesus are set apart to carry out this mission. I love what D.A. Carson said. Jesus' prayer for His disciples has as its end their mission to the world. Oh, friends, we must understand, as we pray for one another, that our prayers for one another should be missions-centered prayers. So we don't just pray for Aunt Susie or Uncle Jimmy uh, to feel better. We pray that somehow God may sanctify them even in those trials. And through their sanctification, they may show the glory of Christ to those who see them suffer. There is a mission-centeredness even in the way we pray for sanctification, for God's glory, for times when we go through troubles. Jesus prays for the disciples' mission. Finally, the last thing Jesus prays for, Jesus prays for the church's unity. This implies clearly that what Jesus sends the disciples to do will bear fruit. Jesus says, I'm not praying just for the disciples. I am also praying for those who will believe in their word. That means, dear friends, us, all of us, we are part of that group because we have believed in the word that was passed on from the disciples. And Jesus prays that the unity and love Jesus has taught his 11 disciples will continue to characterize the church. Verses 20 and 21 my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. For what purpose? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Two things I want to say about this unity. What is the foundation for the unity of Christians? What is the foundation of the unity of Christians or among Christians, there are two things. I know I'm, I'm giving you two twos, but there are two things. Our unity is founded on the unity between the persons of the Trinity. Our unity is founded and modeled, modeling the, the unity between the persons of the Trinity. Because God is three persons and yet one, we who are many members are called to be one body. A unity. The call to unity is the Trinity, dear friends. The call, why, the reason why the church needs to be united is because God is a Trinity. Our Trinitarian view of God demands unity of His church. Friends, this means, a very important implication, this means that what we are as one body is more important than what we are as individual Christians. Let me say that again. What we are as one body gathered together is more important than what we are as individual Christians. Think of the metaphor of the body and the members. Would you rather have just an eye out there by itself on a table? Or would you rather have the whole body? And yet how often 
we think that our individual lives are more important than the unity, the oneness of the body of Christ. When you think of daily decisions, your weekly schedules, it's so easy for us to put our own personal needs in front of the needs of the gathering of the saints. Honestly, this is very relevant. The unity of the body is more important than what we are to get by ourselves separately. Friends, do you see yourself this way? That you are, as a member of Christ's body, more important than what you are as an individual Christian? If you do, if you see yourself more important as a member of the body, then issues such as belonging to the church, belonging to a body of believers, should not be as difficult to make. Our unity is founded, the second thing on, on which our unity is founded, it's not only on the Trinity, it's also our unity is founded on the unity each of us have with the Father and the Son. This means that we cannot have unity with people who are not united with Christ. This is very important, friends. We cannot have unity with people who are not united personally with the Father and the Son. This also means that we cannot have this kind of unity founded on things other than our unity with God. Friends, the unity that we have in church is not the kind of unity that you have if you are members of the Lions Club. The unity we have in church is not the kind of unity that you have with, with a gardening club that you may attend or a reading club. Our unity is based not on things that we prefer to have, that we like. Our unity is based on our union with Christ that each of us have. This means that perhaps one of the reasons why the unity of Christians is often broken is because it has been built on the wrong foundations in the first place. So often it's easy for us to build our unity on preferences, on music styles, on common interests, on common life stages. And the list could go on and on. Take away some of these things, and the unity is disturbed. You've been there. You've seen it. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've been there. Perhaps our unity is often going through turbulences because it hasn't been founded on the right things in the first place. So we're called to re-examine the foundations of our unity. Now, our unity at Park Hills Baptist Church is expressed in two ways. First, when members join the church, we ask them to tell us the gospel. Why? Because we want to make sure they're united with Christ. We want to, know they, we want to make sure they know what it means to be united with Jesus. And then the second thing we do here at Park Hills is we ask them to subscribe to our statement of faith, which is a summary of the key truths we believe in the Bible. So that our unity is based not on in the moment of our conversion of the good news of the gospel, but in the key truths of God's revelation. That's what our unity is founded upon. But then our unity is expressed through certain commitments that we make. At Park Hills, this is expressed through the list of promises we make to one another in the church covenant. For those of you who are members of this church and 
you, th- these things are still new to you, I strongly encourage you, go home and, and look on the website. It's Church Covenant, it's on Statement of Faith, and what the gospel is. This is what unites us together. If you've been a part of our members' meetings, every time we begin these meetings, uh, twice every two months, every six, six times a year, we begin by recounting, saying out loud, our church covenant. We remind ourselves of the promises we have made to one another. That's not just a church covenant out there. That's an expression of what it means for us to be united. I think we're going to start bringing that into our services so that even those who are not making our, our members' meetings might be reminded of this covenant. But friends, the point is this. We are united based on the truth of the gospel and the truth expressed in our statement of faith. And then we show that unity, we show that commitment through the promises we make to one another. Now, what is the purpose of this unity? Verse 23. Let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is why we love unity. This is why Jesus prayed for the protection of their unity, because their unity is a way to tell the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. And their unity is a way to tell the world that Jesus loves us, loves his people. Friends, Jesus implies that the unity between Christians is a sign of God's love for us and a display of the gospel. Friends, this is why we encourage our visitors and regular attenders, uh, to consider joining a church. We would love for them to consider, if you're visiting this morning, we would love for you to consider joining this church. But when someone chooses to keep a distance by not being willing to commit himself or herself to a group of Christians, that gives a wrong message to the world about the love of Christ for us. If Jesus was willing to give himself up for us, our love and our commitment to one another should, this, should display this kind of selfless commitment. Our unity puts the love of Christ on display to the world. Parkos Baptist Church, is this true among us? If you're a member of this congregation, let me speak to you. Is this true? Are you contributing to this love and unity? Or are you acting against it? whether intentionally or unintentionally. Those of you who are regular attenders, we encourage you to find a local church where Christ's followers are committed to live in community. You can't be in unity without having community. You just can't. Don't fool yourself. We hope that wherever God calls you to be a part of, you would consider joining that church. And if it's not here, please go and find that kind of church where you can commit to and be in unity. The way we live in community is a greater display of the truth of the gospel than the way we live individually. Living as a church is not a separate issue from the gospel. Living in unity as a church is what the gospel produces in us, and it's a visible display of the gospel. So when someone says, and I had this this thing recently, when someone says, Um, It doesn't matter. You don't have to join a church to be saved. Have you heard that? As a pastor, I I hear that often. In some ways, it's true. In some ways. But in more ways, it's not true. Because when someone is willingly 
staying away from committing himself or herself to a group of believers? That means they may have misunderstood the gospel. Because the gospel unites us based on what we have in Christ. So friends, the church is not just a community where we offer spiritual services or spiritual support. The church is a family that lives in unity. We eat together. We share life together. We ask each other hard questions. We pursue Jesus together. We belong to one another. So Jesus prayed for five things. For the glory of God, for protection against disunity and evil, for sanctification of the disciples, for the mission of the disciples, and for the unity of the church. Friends, notice how these five prayer requests were spiritual in nature. They're not an exhaustive list of what a church needs in its spiritual life. It's also, this list does not imply that earthly needs are not important, but these are a good comparison to see how we, in our own prayer lives, compare to Christ's prayer lists. Do you pray for such things? Do these things matter to you? I hope and pray that you would consider these prayer reasons, these prayer lists, and, and, and look for, try to emulate Jesus' prayer. If you're a member of this church, I hope you're taking the, 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 the directory that we have with pictures of each member and a name. Go through that list at least a few times a week, one by one. Pray these things that you heard today that Jesus prayed for. Pray these things for the disciples. Pray these things for our members, for one another. We need our prayers for one another. I encourage you, keep that uh, membership directory in your Bibles and commit. Let's commit to pray so that God's glory may be manifest in our midst, so that people will come to know Christ, so that His glory would be evident and our mission would be clear and our unity would be um, conspicuous. Let's pray.